Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In her book, Beyond the Land, Diaspora Israeli Culture in the 21st Century, published by Wayne State University Press in 2023, Melissa Weininger theorizes a new category of diaspora Israeli culture that is formed around and through notions of homeland and complicates the binary between diaspora and Israel. Melissa Weininger is an assistant professor of Jewish studies at California State University, Northridge. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Yeah, actually, um, it's interesting because um, I wrote my, my training is in uh, Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And I wrote my dissertation about some modernist uh, literature from the early 20th century. And that was uh, sort of what I had worked on for a long time. Um, And I maybe came to the material in the book uh, sort of accidentally, as one does. I mean, so I feel like so many of my academic projects and interests are things that I stumbled into, happily stumbled into. Um, And I read this book. Actually, first, I read a story, an excerpt from the book, uh, The People of Forever Are Not Afraid by Shani Boyanju. And uh, I became very interested in it. It is a, it's featured in um, my book, In Beyond Land. Um, But it is an English language uh, novel, novel in stories by an Israeli writer. And uh, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I had not been introduced to the concept of trilingual literature or literature that um, is written uh, by authors in a non-native language. And uh, then very shortly after that, um, Ayelet Sabari published her short story collection, The People of Forever Are Not Afraid, which is also an English language book by an Israeli writer. And um, I thought, wow, this is a thing. (laughs) It's not just a one-off. And once something is a thing, uh, then it's something you can write about. (laughs) And um, I started writing about those books. And then again, just, uh, you know, over time sort of you know, once you kind of become uh, connected to or a little bit immersed in a topic, you know, like with everything else, you start to notice it everywhere. And um, over time, I realized that uh, this was a kind of bigger thing. um, And that thing was something that we didn't really have a name for, and that I called diaspora Israeli culture. Right, right. Um, Speaking of which, uh, could you describe the scene from the Israeli sketch comedy show, Hayyudim Ba'im, The Jews Are Coming, with which you begin your book? Yeah. By the way, I love how you pronounce it with the Ashkenazi accent, because it's so like, actually, it it, it goes along with the topic of what we're talking about today, because it's so antithetical, you know, the Zionist ethos of, of Hebrew pronunciation, right, as over and against, um, you know, diasporic Hebrew pronunciation. So I love it. I'm going to call it how you do Habayim from now on. I should just say, as someone who who grew up in a Hasidic community and then left it, I'm working very hard to make my Hebrew a little less Hasidic and a little more uh, sort of quote-unquote mainstream. Oh, but I'm sorry I- to hear that because <laughs> I think it's great and I think pronouncing it with the diasporic pronunciation is is perfect, actually. <laughs> um so the, this is, uh, for, for those who don't know, by the way, this is a great, great show, which unfortunately, uh, if you're an English speaker in America, you can't see very much of it. However, if you go to YouTube, type in The Jews Are Coming, uh, there are a few sketches that have been subtitled in English that are available on YouTube, um, although in the last few years, their copyright protection or something's gotten a lot tougher, and so it's hard to... Um, uh, find them. But uh, this is a Israeli sketch comedy show that you might compare to like 
Saturday Night Live or something, except that its topics are um, Jewish history, uh, biblical stories, and um, Israeli history for the most part. Um, And uh, the sketch uh, that you asked about um, is features, it sort of opens, uh, you know, with this kind of soft music and, and it's a, uh, all the biblical sketches, the sketches about biblical stories, um, open with a voiceover, uh, you know, a deep voice that sort of sets the scene and it says, you know, gives the, the year, uh, before the common era, um, with these, you know, Jews sitting, uh, by the, um, Uh, the banks of the Euphrates in Babylon, of course, where they've been exiled right after the Babylonian exile. Um, And it it sort of begins with some of the words of of the psalm, right, Uh, by the the rivers of Babylon. Uh, And it's basically these three people, uh, you know, dressed in, I guess, what you imagine uh, ancient Jews in Babylon wore. I'm not really sure how they figured that out. And, uh, but it's, you know, it feels right. And, um, and, you know, they're talking about, to each other, about how much they miss uh, Israel, Jerusalem. And they're talking about, you know, people they know. And, oh, do you remember this guy? And, yeah. And, and they keep saying, oh, yeah, I wish we could go back. I wish, I wish we could be there. You know, I long for it so much. And then all of a sudden, uh, another guy runs up and he said, hey, 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 did you hear? Do you hear? Um, you know, Cyrus the Great is letting us go back. And, um, and, and they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then he says, okay, okay so we're going to go pack. Are we going back? And then one by one. They each have these excuses for why they can't go back. And they're like, you know, they're great excuses. One of them's like, you know, I'd love to, but I just joined a gym. And, you know, you can't get out of those contracts. And another one is like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, the, I, 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 of course I, I, I want to go back. But, you know, we just built a new house and it has a pool, you know, and, and all this stuff. So they, they um you know, these very quotidian excuses. And eventually the guy who ran up so excited is kind of convinced to come and sit with them and stay. Um, And, you know, it's a joke um, about how um, uh, diaspora has been a place where Jews have lived uh, fulfilling um, lives uh, that they actually don't want to leave. And and one of the reasons why... um, in Israel and for an Israeli comedy show, that's such a joke, um, is of course because of the Zionist notion of the negation of exile, namely that Zionism and, and the kind of foundational ideology of the state of Israel is predicated on the idea that um, the diaspora anywhere outside of Israel is inferior and in fact is um, um, undesirable uh, early Zionists thought of the diaspora as abnormal and diseased. They used this language. I'm not just um, imputing that to them. And uh, historically, that really has been the predominant feeling um, in Israel, among Israelis, and certainly um, in the kind of official rhetoric and discourse of the state, um, is that Israel um, really is the only uh, or the best uh, home for the Jews, and they're poking fun at that notion, right? That like, look, we all know that historically, right, from the ancient period, from the time of Babylon, that's why we have the Babylonian Talmud. <laughs> uh, Jews have lived happily and healthily and well in many places in the diaspora. Obviously, they've also had horrible tragedies and and. Um, you know, uh, been targeted and all kinds of things. But we also have lots of example where that's not the case and Jews, you know, perfectly happy to live in diaspora. Right, right. So uh, there, there seems to be a kind of tension, let's say, uh, in the Jewish tradition in terms of the, the place of a Jewish homeland and uh, the, the, the status of... Uh, of of the diaspora. So you just described kind of one side, if you will, of this tension that Jews for millennia have lived outside 
of 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 Palestine outside of Israel, and that as you you mentioned, uh, you know the 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 Babylonian Talmud, which is one of the great uh, bodies of Jewish literature, uh, you know has its name Babylonian Talmud because it was produced in Babylon, not in 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 Israel, um, and and many many uh, codes of Jewish law and books of Jewish philosophy have been uh, uh, produced outside of of Israel. Um, at the same time, there is um, uh, so this concept of exile within the Jewish tradition. What's the significance of exile for Jewish self-conception, um, and how is it evident in uh, sort of daily Jewish life and customs? Yeah, so um, I think uh, my sort of obviously i'm working on contemporary literature um and not as much on the kind of um historical um you know the way that the concept of exile operates historically or golos galut right um however um in thinking about my book and the topic of my book, I think uh, maybe the most relevant context to put this in is, again, the context of um, Zionism, which really did conceive of uh, diaspora as exile in the negative sense, right, with all that comes with it. And... Um, a kind of exilic mentality or culture, right, that had developed around that. And that when I mentioned before that, um, you know, early Zionists thought of diaspora life and diaspora culture as abnormal and diseased, um, that was really the source of that conception was that it was an abnormal condition to be in exile, right? That exile um, was unhealthy, and uh, obviously, this crossed with all kinds of other uh, dis European discourses of the 19th century, right? There, there's intersections between those. Uh, but um, they sort of picked up on this idea of exile as a negative condition, as an unhealthy condition, uh, as something to be corrected. And Zionism was the corrective. Um, and I also, you know, this might sound in a way kind of, you know, um, sort of outdated, right, kind of way of thinking, but uh, I can't emphasize the degree to which this kind of thinking uh, sometimes still surfaces in uh, Israeli culture and Israeli thought, Um Actually, I was just talking about having watched Israeli news a lot over the last few days, sometimes in that way, too. Um, one example, which I do include in the book, is that um, some years ago, and these actually you can find on YouTube, the um, Ministry of Immigrant Absorption produced some advertisements that to me seemed directed at Israelis living in the diaspora. Uh, that really picked up on this uh, negative notion of diaspora as an exile. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the ads are things like, for example, you see a, uh, a Skype call, this was before Zoom, uh, between some grandparents and their grandchild, they're speaking Hebrew, and the grandparents, there's a Hanukkah in the background, snow on the ground, so we can assume it's uh, Hanukkah, and of course, snow on the ground where the child's living means they're not living in Israel. And um, the grandparents say, oh, do you know what holiday is coming up? And the child said, yeah, Christmas. <laughs> And, um, and then, you know, it's kind of like, the da -dun, and the, you know, like the law and order thing. Uh, they, I don't think that noise is actually in it, but it sort of has that uh, feeling. Screen goes blank. And there's a voiceover that says, you know, they will always be Israeli. Their children will not, you know. And this idea of, you know, Christmas, this kind of Christian uh, boogeyman, this assimilationist boogeyman, again, um, the perils, again, of exile, right, that can be uh, corrected or avoided uh, simply by, in this case, for Israelis living outside of Israel, returning to Israel, um, but certainly... Um, you know, that is the kind of 
the negative valence that's attached to diaspora is this kind of exilic, diaspora as an exilic condition that can be corrected um, with uh, immigration to or returned to the land of Israel and the state of Israel. Right. And you kind of touched on this before, but but just to give you a chance to elaborate, you write that the elevation of homeland, Zion, Jerusalem, the land of Israel, over diaspora is a modern phenomenon. What do you mean by that? Uh, I mean that... Um, <sighs> The, the, with the establishment of the state of Israel, maybe actually what I should have written is that um, that phenomenon as an institutional phenomenon is modern um, and really is something that we see beginning with the establishment of the state and the institutions of the state, like, for example, the Ministry of Immigrant Absorption, for example, is one thing, um, that... Uh, you know, the state of Israel has created all kinds of um, organizational capabilities, institutional capabilities around that are organized around this notion of uh, diaspora and exile as a negative thing, right? And and I, I can't emphasize enough as something that, that should be corrected, right? And fixed, and fixed by movement to the homeland. And uh, one other thing I want to say about that is the effect that, that, that relates particularly to the kind of theoretical framework of, of my book is that that uh, positioning, right, and that institutional framework, organizational framework, um, epistemological framework, uh, that uh, sort of reifies Israel or homeland and diaspora into these two separate, discrete and oppositional concepts, right? Um, not just two different places, right? But to the, it, it, it makes them into these conceptual um, uh, frameworks for, uh, for culture, for thought, uh, uh, for, for society and how we organize our Jew Jewish society, if we want to think about it that way in a global sense. Um, and you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book and that even the term diaspora Israeli culture is designed to kind of force us to think about is um, the ways that these two concepts of diaspora or exile and homeland or Israel um, can't actually be separated from each other, right? All of the kind of institutional framework designed to um, reify them as these separate and oppositional things, ideas, um, uh, is really obscuring something much more powerful, which is that uh, diaspora and Israel have always been, as we see in that sketch from Hayodim Bayim, right, um, and still are um, uh, implicated in each other, influences on each other, inseparable from each other in so many ways, um, that uh, I think is a much more productive way for us to think about them and also um, produces um, much more nuanced, useful uh, kind of ways of thinking about the politics of these two ideas and also these two places, right? Because there is a, um, as we've, of course, seen in the last uh, week, uh, a really, um, you know, urgent kind of uh, field of political discourse uh, around these two uh, concepts, that needs to be reckoned with. And one of the ways that we can reckon with it is, in, in my thinking, is through uh, this concept of diaspora Israeli culture. Right. And we're going to return a, a bit later on uh, to talk about some of the political ramifications. So we definitely want to touch on that soon. Um, I'm curious, uh, what are some of the works of speculative fiction you explore that provide alternative outcomes of the Zionist project? Yeah. So these are really interesting novels. And um, 
happily, I also just want to say at the outset before we talk about any of the material, most of the material in the book is available in English to interested readers. Um, actually, of the speculative fiction novels that I'll tell you about, there's three that I uh, focus on in the book. One of them is not available in English, but if any English language publishers would like to publish it in English, it should be published in English. Um, that book is a book called Herzl Amar by uh, the writer Yoav Avni. Um, and uh, it that translates to Herzl said. Uh, Herzl refers to Theodore Herzl, who was the kind of uh, founding uh, father of uh, Zionism and Zionist thought um, and in the 19th century. And um, that book uh, postulates a world in which a state of Israel exists, but it does not exist in um, the biblical land of Israel. It exists in East Africa because in that book, a different historical path has been taken. Um, in 1903, the British colonial government offered a parcel of land to the Zionist Congress, a parcel of land in East Africa. Um, it was known as Uganda at the time, but the place where this land is is now the country of Kenya, mostly. Um, uh, for settlement, for Jewish settlement, and for the eventual establishment of a Jewish homeland. Um, for, I'm not going to get into the reasons why this happened, but for a variety of reasons, the proposal was rejected and didn't go forward. Um, but uh, Avni's novel imagines a world in which it did. Uh, and then uh, there's a, a, another English language novel by the writer uh, Levi Tirhar. Uh, called Unholy Land, that also imagines um, a Jewish homeland in East Africa. That one's a little more complicated because it also involves some time travel and parallel universes. <laughs> um, and in one of the parallel universes, there actually is a Jewish homeland or was one in uh, the uh, biblical land of Israel that's been destroyed. So that's also interesting in and of itself. And then the final uh, novel I consider in that chapter is a novel called, um, in Hebrew, Israel, um, or in English, Israel. And that's by the um, late Israeli writer Nava Semel uh, and translated by into English by Jessica Cohen. Um, uh, in an excellent translation, uh, so it is available in English. Um, and that actually imagines a different alternative homeland that was once proposed in the 19th century by an American uh, Jewish statesman named Mordechai Manuel Noah, who proposed uh, a parcel of land in, on Grand Island, New York, an island in the Hudson River, uh, for a Jewish homeland. Um, and in that novel, which also involves some parallel time kind of um, uh, machinations, uh, uh, in one part of the novel, there is a uh, Jewish state on Grand Island, New York, that's one of the United States. And uh, a part of the plot of that section of the novel is that a um, woman uh, politician from Grand Island, Jewish politician, who's actually a descendant of Mordechai Manuel Noah, um, is running for president of the United States. Um and so, yeah, all very, all very entertaining and interesting novels that sort of um, go back to these uh, plans for alternative homelands that existed uh, during the period when um, Zionism was kind of casting around for this solution to what they framed as the problem of exile. And... Um, uh, you know, when there were a lot of different ideas about what that solution might be. Right. And so what do these alternative histories suggest regarding the nature of the Jewish homeland? Yeah. So a, a number of different things. Um, of course, interestingly, um, none of them are utopias. Uh, and I think that's important because, for example, there's a precedent, uh, Theodore Herzl himself wrote a novel called Otnoiland, um, Old New Land, um, in which he imagined, uh, he, he died long, long, long before the establishment of the state of Israel, even before the most significant Jewish settlement in Palestine. 
Um, but uh, he imagined a future Jewish homeland um, in Palestine um, that was this utopian uh, paradise. I mean, we can argue whether it actually is utopian or not, because, you know, there's... um, he was also immersed in the, um, you know, politics of his time. Uh, but he, he tried to sort of create this technological, egalitarian utopia where Jews and Arabs live in harmony together and all this stuff. Um, and so, you know, the sort of precedent, I think, uh, at least in Jewish literature, right, uh, for thinking about um, alternative homelands or, or is, is utopia, and these novels are not utopian. Uh, in fact, in in many of them, maybe in all of them, to a certain extent, that the kinds of problems um, that uh, political problems, social problems uh, that we find in our own modern day state of Israel um, are reproduced in the societies that are imagined there. So, you know, I think one of the things that can tell us is, um, you know, uh, look, these problems would have existed wherever we are, right? These are pro- these are post-colonial problems. Wherever the Jews were going to settle was going to be um, in a land in which, uh, you know, there's no empty land, right? There are indigenous populations in all of these places. And, um, you know, we, we would have faced the same issues wherever we went. I think that's one thing we might take away from it. Right. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, could you briefly describe um, Ruby Namdar's novel, The Ruined House, and Maya Arad's novella, The Hebrew Teacher? Yeah, these two are actually quite different. Um but they have in common that they're both Hebrew novels written uh, in the United States by writers who make their homes here. Um, uh, Ruby Namdar's novel is um, about an American Jewish college professor who begins to have what appears to be like a nervous breakdown of sorts and has visions of the temple in Jerusalem appear to him in New York, the the temple, and then uh, eventually its destruction um, by the Romans, um, and so we have this actual quite little literal mixing of um, you know Zion or homeland and diaspora, where he, he, there's sort of these rips it, in his visions, at least these kind of rips in the space time continuum, and all of a sudden you know there's. Uh, uh, Levite priests walking down the streets of Manhattan and, and things like that, and uh, right, um, and then uh, Maya Arad's novella is a bit different. And I, I should also note that um, this this novella is the one I primarily focus on in the book. But Maya Arad has written uh, many books. She's been living in the United States for decades, and she's written many books that touch on uh, American life and American Jewish life. A lot of her books are set. Um, in uh, the United States. and um, But this book is interesting. It's titled The Hebrew Teacher, and it's really about uh, questions of language and also this, this politics of Israel and diaspora, which come up in, in the novella. Um, and it centers around a, a Hebrew instructor at an unnamed Midwestern university uh, whose classes are becoming less and less popular, um, who's sort of doubting her place in the world as the politics of Israel and diaspora change and fewer and fewer diaspora Jews want to take Hebrew, for example. Um, and she begins writing a memoir. And so the, the first um, uh, uh, words of the novel are actually in English um, because she's, uh, she's sort of um, trying to decide whether she writes her memoir in Hebrew or in English, right? Where is she positioned with regard to her Israeliness uh, now that she's spent so many decades outside of Israel, even though she's immersed in, you know, the language and culture of Israel in a very real way. So, yeah. All right. And uh, what do um, uh, Namdar and um, Arad's works say about the Jewish diaspora and its links to Israel, as well as the survival of global Jewish culture? Yeah. So to me, the most interesting thing about these books is, uh, uh, and this 
is true in a sort of uh, inverse way for the translingual English literature that I discuss as well is uh, the question of language. And because Hebrew, of course, um, has really been um, inextricably tied to uh, the Zionist project and since the establishment of the state to the state of Israel. Um, not just Hebrew, but Hebrew culture as a mode of establishing uh, a specifically Israeli culture that, again, is in contrast to um, and uh, is in contrast to diaspora Jewish culture. I mean, we could go back even to the pronunciation issue that I noted at the beginning of our conversation, right? Um, Israeli Hebrew pronunciation was chosen very consciously to be different than uh, Ashkenazi uh, Hebrew pronunciation. European, uh, uh, Hebrew, European uh, exactly. pronunciation of Hebrew. Exactly. Uh, Ashkenazi, right, your European um, diasporic uh, uh, pronunciations of Hebrew uh, because it was... Um, going to be a new language, a new culture that was a Hebrew culture. And so even just to write a book in Hebrew, a novel in Hebrew, that's set in the United States, right, where theoretically the people speaking in the book, even though it's written in Hebrew, they're speaking in English, right? Um, and, and you know, in, in both of these books, we have elements of American culture kind of translated into Hebrew. Um, in Ruby's book, there's a lot, there's, you know, like, uh, kind of classic American show tunes, for example, that he translates into the Hebrew because, you know, they're things that the um, character's grandmother sang to him when he was young. Uh, and um, in Maya Rod's book, we find something uh, uh, interesting that you don't find very much, which is, you know, American Jewish characters using Yiddishisms, which are so common in American Jewish speech. Uh, but something that was really consciously kind of um, eradicated from uh, Jewish uh, speech in uh, Israel um, in favor of Hebrew. And so, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been surprised when I've been in Israel when I use a, a word that's common in Jewish culture in America that's obviously a Yiddish word or derived from Yiddish, um, and Israelis are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, um, uh, uh, and I'm like, how, what, you know, how, how is that possible? But it, re it really is true, right? Hebrew was really meant to kind of just uh, pave over uh, all, not, not just European Jewish culture and languages, but also the cultures and languages of uh, Jews from around the world, right? It just happened that um, the, found, the sort of founding fathers of Zionism were themselves Ashkenazi, and that was, you know, was and often still is the kind of dominant, um, you know, subculture in Israel. Uh, but so the just the the very way that Hebrew is used in these novels uh, creates a kind of challenge to that idea of Hebrew as this sort of exclusively, you know, um, Israeli language. And and by the way, one other thing I'll say about that um, that also comes up uh, later in the book is that um, one of the things this does is sort of force uh, Hebrew to um, contend with. Uh, the fact of its origins in the diaspora. That's another thing that was paved over uh, by early Zionists, by the, the state of Israel, um, is that Hebrew is not an indigenous language to Palestine or to Israel. Uh, Hebrew is a European language. Um, you know, Hebrew, uh, modern Hebrew, that is. Uh, modern Hebrew was developed in the uh, literature of uh, European Jews uh, in the cafes of, uh, of the great cities of Europe in the 19th century. Uh, and it came to Palestine uh, with uh, Zionist uh, settlers. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that writing these books does, even if not explicitly, is it sort of reminds us and forces us to reckon with the fact that, you know, Hebrew has never actually been exclusively associated with uh, Israel, but uh, has rather um, 
also and been a, a diaspora language and a diaspora construction. Right. And you touched on this before, but could you uh, just clarify a little bit what exactly is translingualism and how does it show up in Israeli literature? Yeah, translingualism is the phenomenon of literature that's written uh, by authors writing in a non-native language. Um, And in uh, my book, I look at some translingual English works of uh, fiction by Israeli writers. Um, in particular, uh, the books I mentioned earlier, The People of Forever Are Not Afraid by Shani Boyanju and um, The Best Place on Earth by Ayelet Sabari, um, as well as uh, a slightly older book that's actually kind of um, sort of a mix of genres by the Israeli uh, activist and writer uh, Rela Mazali. Um, uh, and um, these works, in a way, they kind of are the inverse of the Hebrew language works uh, that are being written in the United States and the diaspora. Um, these are uh, English language works that are Israeli literature. Um, and actually, there is now a lot of Israeli literature that's not in Hebrew, right? There's a huge, um, of course, um, Russian-speaking population in Israel that has their own uh, Russian-language literature. Um, there have always been um, English-language writers in Israel. There's even They have their own um, association, um, most of them immigrants from English-speaking countries who are not writing translingual literature. But this phenomenon of... Um, Israelis writing in English about deeply, deeply Israeli uh, topics and landscapes um, and ideas um, is uh, kind of a newer one. Um, And uh, in particular, what I noticed about these works, which of course are written by women, um, is that it seems to allow for uh, a kind of examination of topics that um, are often elided or taboo or historically have been. Now a lot of these topics enter into Israeli culture and Israeli literature, but have historically been elided or taboo um, uh, or even um, uh, just just really not considered as much in um, Hebrew language literature and culture. Um, it seems to provide a certain kind of freedom in a way to... Uh, look at those topics in a in a kind of critical way. Um, yeah. Right. So you note that some of these works offer a critique of Zionist tropes. Could you give some examples of how this plays out? Yeah. Um, I I think a, a lot of this uh, occurs around um, gender and sexuality. Uh, there are a lot of so the the Ayelet Sabari's book is a book of short stories. Um, and a lot of her characters are characters that in various ways encounter uh, these kind of uh, constructions of gender that they don't, Israeli, particularly Israeli constructions of gender that they just simply don't fit into. Um, uh, for example, she um, has a story that's about a young Mizrahi boy uh, uh, that's a uh, Mizrahi is a word that's used in Israel. It's kind of a catch-all term that's used to refer to Jews of non-European heritage. Um, in this case, he's Iraqi. His family is Iraqi, um, who likes to write. He's a poet. Um, but he's sort of given all these messages that writing and poetry are not masculine, and that the way to be a man is to, you know, be in the military and um, to hide your feelings, right? Not to express them through writing. And and it's sort of about him finding the role models um, that show him this, that there is an alternate kind of path to uh, constructing one's identity as um, an Israeli, and particularly a Mizrahi Israeli boy. And, uh, you know, so, uh, again, those are, those are uh, topics and ideas that have often been invisible 
in um, Israeli culture uh, that really come to the surface um, in this book. And I, that's just one example. I, I would say in almost all of the stories in that book, you encounter some kind of, um, you know, uh, challenge uh, provided to like a, an Israeli trope, especially of gender. Um, yeah. Right. And in addition to looking at, um, at, at works of literature, you also explore Yael Bartana's uh, video installation titled and, and Europe will be shunned and will be stunned. Um, uh, um, could you tell us a little bit about that um, video installation? Yeah, um, Yael Bartana is an Israeli um, artist. Uh, she works a lot in the video medium, but she also has other works. Um, and this was a series of three uh, videos that were produced um, in the um, early uh, 2000s and 2010s, I think from about 2008 to 2011, if I'm not mistaken, around that time, um, that document a fictional uh, political movement in Poland um, called the Jewish Renaissance Movement in Poland um, that led by a charismatic uh, Polish politician who's played actually by a Polish journalist, I believe. Um, and their political program calls for the return of Jews to Poland as a mode of healing, um, which is complicated and problematic in and of itself. <laughs> uh, but in particular, the second video is very interesting because what it documents is the settlement of a group of Israeli Jewish pioneers in Warsaw, in Muranov Square, which actually this, it, it, it was made before the uh, Pauline Museum stood there. So now um, I'm not even actually sure the little piece of uh, grass on which the, they can construct their kibbutz um, is, is still there because the, the museum was built afterwards. But um, yeah, they come into Warsaw and they build what is like essentially a little kibbutz in the middle of Warsaw, Muranov Square, which was the, um, historically the Jewish neighborhood uh, before the Shoah. And um, they create this little settlement. Um, they have a flag. This is the the, the JRMIP, the, the Jewish Renaissance Movement in Poland, have a little flag that combines both the Star of David and the Polish Eagle. Um, it, it's, it, it, all the videos are fascinating. I'm pretty sure the first one is available on her website. Um, but the second one is really interesting because it raises, of course, all these questions of, um, obviously, it, it reverses the movement of, um, you know, return to the homeland, right? In this case, a returning to the diaspora. So it envisions the diaspora as a kind of homeland. Um, uh, but it also um, recalls and kind of reproduces some of the problematics of settlement, right, that we see um, uh, leveled against uh, Zionist settlement as well, uh, namely, right, the displacement of whoever's already there. There's a scene where, um, you know, people walking through the square kind of come up to this kibbutz that's appeared overnight and like are looking at like what is this and why is it in the middle of my you know the place I walk my dog and you know it's silly in a way but it, it calls our attention to some of these uh, questions and asks whether again like the speculative fiction I mentioned whether these are not just questions that we need to contend with wherever they arise right um, that that plague us that might trouble us in the diaspora as much as they do in the homeland um, uh, at the same time as it uh, kind of also uh, in a way makes an impassioned case for a diaspora Jewish identity that was lost, right? There's a kind of nostalgia involved in the project as, uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just uh, 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 to add to that, I, I understand that now in Eastern Europe uh, over, I don't know, the past bunch of years, there's been... Uh, um, you know, movements uh, are um, sort of cultural developments where uh, uh, local um, residents, people who are not Jewish, have often embraced sort of klezmer music or other aspects of uh, Jewish, uh, you know, European culture and tried to celebrate it even in the absence of 
actual living, you know, Jews who have been, you know, uh, um, um, uh, killed by the by the Holocaust or people who, you know, went to Israel and and other places. But there's like this kind of nostalgic move to somehow center parts of the you know Jewish cultural expression in locations that used to be central to those Jewish. You know, right, uh, but uh, absent actual Jews, right? It's that—that's like a—it's like the, a theoretical Judaism in a way, or theoretical Jewish culture, um, right? Which is, has its own problematics, and in a way, this this also calls attention to that. I think, and th- these videos also call attention to that, and actually, even maybe are formulate a kind of response to that phenomenon as well, which which I think is interesting. Um, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, if you go to um, a few years ago for a conference, I was in Warsaw and um, uh, Krakow, and you know, there's a whole section of Krakow in the old Jewish area of Kostmiers, uh, where there's just a kind of street full of you know restaurants that are they have klezmer bands come and play, and they have you know like Jewish food, which some of which was totally unrecognizable to me, um, even though that's essentially the area where my you know, own roots lie. And, you know, I thought I knew what Ashkenazi Jewish food was, <laughs> but, um, you know, so, um, yeah, it also, it also, I think, uh, kind of engages with that impulse, um, in particular in the call for healing, right? The, 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 pol- this kind of sort of political platform of this party, part of it is that the return of the Jews will heal this wound, of the Holocaust without reference to the fact that it was um, partly the responsibility of Poland, right? That, that it, it, it created that wound too, or participated in its creation. I know probably that that would get me canceled in Poland. I'm pretty sure. Right. Um, right, right, uh, right. This is because, right. The, yeah. the question of the role of the Polish state and of Polish citizens in the 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 carrying out of the 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 decimation of of Jews during the Holocaust has become a political issue, and there are laws now that prevent uh, honest uh, discussion of these issues in Poland right now. Yes, absolutely, and. Um... You know that also comes up in a very explicit way, like in the, especially in the third video, which um, is um, a funeral essentially, and uh, where these eulogies are given. But the eulogies end up being kind of these uh, political statements, right? So it ends up providing a variety of kind of political responses to these questions. Um, in a, a little bit of a didactic way, but actually it, it works. Um, and um, yeah, so that 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 issue and those questions come up. I mean, it's a very, it, it would be hard in just a few minutes to sort of go through and, and, and even, um, you know, describe all of the very complex, nuanced um, issues and, and references and um, allusions that kind of come up in these uh, videos. I mean, of course, the video medium, you know, the, it also alludes to these, especially the the scenes of the pioneers coming to Warsaw, to these old Zionist films of the, and there, and there are very specific allusions in the video to certain of these films. Um, especially by the filmmaker Helmar Lursky um, uh, of these, you know, Zionist films showing Jewish settlers coming into um, uh, Palestine to settle it. Um, again, one of the things that is consistent between those films and 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 Bartana's work is um, the kind of absence of, in the case of the Zionist old Zionist um, films. Uh, any um, indigenous population, right? You never see Arabs. Um, and in Bartana's film, until that last little scene where there's a few, you know, Warsawians coming up to see what's going on, people, right? This is a big square in the middle of the city. These people just come in and build a kibbutz there. There's nobody there. You don't see them. They must be there, but you don't see them, you know? So there's this kind of reference to the elision of the population that's being displaced there um, and, and the problematics of that. Yeah. 
Right. So speaking of the indigenous population and the problematics of 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 uh, covering that up, and we certainly don't want to be guilty of that uh, in our discussion. Um, can we sh- shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the relationship between the kind of expansive vision of Jewish belonging articulated in your book and the ongoing treatment of Palestinians in Israel-Palestine? Yeah. So. One thing I'll say, and we didn't touch uh, very much on the the last chapter of the book, which is about a group of Israelis in Berlin who are trying to um, create a culture of what they call diasporic Hebrew, which really specifically references some of the things I've mentioned before. And that is really an explicitly like political project um, that is um, actually... Um, you know, designed to make some of these connections that I've noted are sort of elusive and and subtextual in a lot of the work that I uh, uh, study in the book. Um, they really want to make those explicit, and and those activists in Berlin, uh, writers and scholars, um, artists and performers, uh, have tried to um, uh, uh, explicitly tie their work uh, on what they call diasporic Hebrew um, to other um, communities, um, uh, Mizrahi Jews to draw on a kind of um, uh, what, and again, this is something that's open for critique, maybe what they see as a natural affinity between Mizrahi Jews or Arab Jews. Many of themselves think of them, many of them think of themselves as Arab Jews um, to other um Arab diaspora communities um, in Berlin um, and to form a kind of political solidarity across that. um, uh, That also recalls um, the notion of uh, Levantinism proposed by the writer Jacqueline Kahanoff. Um, But uh, so I think, you know, there is, there are some perhaps explicitly political conclusions that you could draw from some of this work. And, and I do think that the kind of Berlin group and, and discussed in, in the last chapter um, tries to do that. Um, and uh, many of the works also, as I've mentioned, um, the uh, novel, the speculative fiction novels, um, Yael Bartana's work, certainly um, the translingual literature I mentioned, um, that uh, specifically, I think, ties uh, their uh, work to um, a kind of a project of critique of um, maybe, one, the invisibility of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, of um, Palestinians generally, of... um, uh, Palestinian culture and belonging in the state, even in the state of Israel, not just in the occupied territories, um, uh, to to their work, right? That they, I think they try to varying degrees and maybe to varying degrees of success. Also, I don't want, I don't want to m- make it sound like you know the, the there's kind of this uh, overt um, attempt to do this, but I I do think that often. Sometimes even, I think inadvertently, it brings those issues to the fore uh, through the kind of critiques of um, various elements of the Zionist project and Zionist tropes that um, are present in those that work. Um, so that's one thing I'll say. Another thing I'll say, which actually I haven't really talked about very much, is that when I first started writing the book, I actually considered writing another chapter um, that would feature uh, the work of Palestinian writers who write in Hebrew. Um, and then I, as I thought more about it, I thought that really um, didn't do their work justice in a way. And I wasn't sure that it was fair or right even um, to try to fit those writers into a framework uh, that was really ultimately a Jewish framework, right? I start the book from this premise of um, diaspora as a Jewish exile. And um, however, I do see, for example, in the work of Syed Kashua, who's probably one of the um, most beloved and best known um, writers of Hebrew literature, now lives actually outside of Israel. Um, uh, 
some of the same themes and ideas that I've identified in this work. So one day, maybe I'll go back to that and try to um, give it its own framework within the context of the kinds of things that I've been discussing, because I do think there is some relationship and connection there that's important to draw out. Right, right. And I wonder specifically, like, uh, these days, I mean, the you know, the past uh, a week or so, there have been horrific uh, acts of brutality against Israeli civilians, and then the Israeli state responded with horrific acts of uh, brutality against uh, Palestinian civilians, and um, many Jews around the world have been engaged uh, on on social media and uh, responding to this uh, kind of a stream of violence. And I'm wondering um, uh, how you see, if you see any of the themes in your book uh, relating to how Jews in the diaspora are responding to these events in Israel-Palestine uh, the past you know, week or so. Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot. Obviously, it's hard not to when you just publish a book about a region that is then, um, you know, uh, of course, first of all, suffers terrible attacks and losses and is also kind of uh, plunged into a kind of chaos, right, uh, at this point. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought really of two specific things in my work that I think can help us, um, you know, think about this and, and, you know, I'm kind of uh, like a reluctant optimist, maybe help us talk about it. Because one of the things I've really noticed, and I've experienced this myself is, um, I mean, obviously, people are hurting, but um, it always happens around this issue, a real tendency to attack each other without listening. And, um, and an, an almost a need to attack as a response. And so two things I would say. One is that um, all of the work that I um, consider in my book is work that in various ways and various means and with different kinds of political orientations imagines a, a different present and therefore different future. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it really points to the way that in times like these, uh, literature, art, culture can be really important and, and a guide to us, a comfort certainly, but also a guide um, because it's the realm of imagination. And I think one thing that we know is that clearly whatever we've done, whatever we are doing um, is not working, right? It continues to result in uh, this kind of violence over and over. And um, I guess my hope would be that, uh, you know, looking to this, to literature, to art, to, to film, to all of these in popular culture, which I also talk about in the book, is an avenue or a vehicle for imagining something different for ourselves and something better. And I do think that this work in particular provides some specific ways and modes of doing that, right? It helps us to move us out of the kind of ruts in our thinking that we're in. And that brings me to my second point. Um, the, the, that idea that we're kind of stuck in these ways of thinking and particularly in binaries, right? The binary that I mentioned in the beginning, the way that Israel and diaspora have been constructed is this oppositional binary where the, as if there's these two, um, again, antagonistic notions. And, um, you know, when you scratch the surface a little bit, again, you see that that's not the case, and it's actually never the case, right? That's what it reminds us. It's never the case um, that two ideas, two concepts, two things are always oppositional and antagonistic. And, um, you know, even the phrase that I use, diaspora Israeli culture, which I explained in the introduction, um, reminds us that you can hold two ideas in your mind, in your heart, in your head uh, at the same time, 
right? Uh, even two ideas that you've been told or taught or have been constructed as uh, discrete and oppositional. Uh, again, we can imagine and we can rethink the ways that uh, those two ideas actually do meet and do touch each other and um, do impinge upon each other, influence each other. And I think that that's really, really important, both in terms of how we speak to each other about these issues that are so divisive and complicated and, and, and you know, tense and, 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 and hard, um, but also, again, about how we imagine something different. Right, right. Well, on that, as you say, uh, sort of uh, potentially optimistic note, um, we we will end it for uh, for now. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the chance also to get to relate my work to you know current events. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.